Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast where we explore all things Scottish heritage, folklore, history, and wonder. I'm Annie, and I'm a medieval peasant. And I'm Jenny, a meddling sorcerer. In this episode, we're looking at how you can live your life as a scholar, but go down in folklore as a powerful magician. It's surprisingly useful advice for those of us that live normal lives, but want to be remembered as legends. For we are wading into the eccentric life of Michael Scott. Now, that is not the eccentric Michael Scott from The Office, nor the ageing NBA player who I went to uni with, weirdly. Nor, for that matter, the Irish author who kept coming up when I was googling Michael Scott. No, we are talking about the one and only medieval wizard Michael Scott. Normally, I would say that we should ground ourselves in the real history of his life first. But actually, I think his story might be more interesting if we begin with some of the legends and then look at how they came to be. Because the relationship between the reality and the folklore gives us fascinating insight into the different aspects of belief throughout time. It shows us how people may welcome or fear knowledge, especially when it comes from different nations and cultures, with a whole range of perceptions on the world. Plus, he's a wizard, Annie. Debatable. (laughs) You say that, but I have the facts right here. Michael Scott was born pointy hat first sometime around 1175 in Balweary Castle in Fife. Well, even this fact of yours is a little uncertain, Jenny. Okay, he might not have had the hat on. Fair news. (laughs) (laughs) Some people say he was from the Scottish borders, and there are a lot of stories concerning him that take place there. So, to play it safe, we're going to say that he came from somewhere in the Scottish lowlands. 
and was associated with many sights throughout his life. All right then, but if there's one thing our lowland wizard loved, I'm sure it was playing it safe. (laughs) Well, Jenny, I'm not so sure about that. The 12th century is a very exciting time for Michael Scott to be being born into. We have the charismatic William the Lion on the Scottish throne, and he's presiding over a feudal nation with an economy that's heavily reliant on agriculture. Oh, Annie, nothing gets me more excited than an agricultural-based economy. Plow those fields, reap that corn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, unfortunately for you, Jenny, Michael Scott is one of the few people of the 12th century who wasn't that invested in yields of corn, for he was busy looking at the plows in the stars, not in the fields. So, let's dive into this. How does Michael Scott become a wizard? Uh, A great question with a great many answers, Annie. And these answers range from wildly unbelievable to pretty unbelievable to just unbelievable-ish. Ah, the full range from a pound of pork to a flying pig. Okay, give me the wildly unbelievable ones first, Jenny. All right, okay. So there's a tale of a Scottish shipmaster who is in a terrible shipwreck far, far out in the southern Atlantic Ocean. He's the only survivor of the wreck and he washes ashore on a deserted desert island. In classic castaway fashion, he befriends a volleyball and finds a good cave to live in. But, to his surprise, the cave he chooses is already inhabited by a beautiful, if somewhat slimy, mermaid. Luckily, she has a spare side cave for him and sublets it to him and the two get along well. And before long, what do you know, they've fallen in love. This particular mermaid's love language is that of gifting. And she goes out to sea each day and collects rare sunken treasures of gold and gemstones to give to her new lover. And in time, a child is born to them. But when the child is still young, the shipmaster spots a boat far out on the horizon and is able to signal to it with fire. The ship comes and rescues him and his infant son, but he leaves behind his mermaid love. When they finally make it back to the shores of Scotland, he purchases Balweary Castle with the many treasures his love had gifted him, and he raises their little half-human, half-merperson son there. Their son, whose name is Michael. Okay, so in this version of events, young Michael grows up to be none other than Michael Scott, the Wizard of Balweary. And his powers come from his slimy, supernatural mother. Yup. Okay, I see what you mean. That is wildly unbelievable. So what's one of the pretty unbelievable stories then, Jenny? Okay, um, this particular story comes from The Borders. And it takes place when Michael is a young man on the cusp of adulthood, when he and his two friends set out on a journey. But they don't fancy taking the boring drover's roads that they've walked a hundred times. They fancy a bit of an adventure. And so the three lads set out over the moors and up the hills. When they reached the top of one particularly big hill, they rested their weary legs and looked out over the landscape plotting their route going forwards. But, to their horror, down in the glen below, they saw a huge white serpent, and it was slithering straight up the mountainside right towards them. 
Michael's two pals absolutely bricked it. They turned around and they ran back the way they had come. Michael, however, stood his ground. And as the great snake reached the top of the mountain and reared to strike him, he raised his walking staff high above his head and struck wildly at the snake. When he opened his eyes, he saw that he had been successful and the beast had been severed at two points and cut into three pieces. Michael called to his friends who trudged back up the hill and all three celebrated his victory. They then continued to a small lodge house where they spoke boldly of their snake-slaying adventures upon the hill to the wee old woman who ran the place. But as soon as they were finished their story, the wee woman inquired, What did you do with the pieces? Did you cast them far away or bury them or burn them? Michael said that they had done none of these things. They just left it right where it was. Oh, mercy, mercy. A man once thought he slayed that very beast just like you, although he cut it into two pieces rather than three. But he too left it where it lay. And a few hours later, by some power unknown to us humans, the creature reconnected its two halves and slithered into a nearby river, the waters of which healed it. It then set out to get its revenge and found the man who had cut him so and ate him whole. Michael was wary of this tale, but the old woman was possessed by some sort of frantic excitement and convinced him to go out and collect the middle piece of the slayed creature so that there was no way it could become whole once more and hunt him and eat him too. And so, off Michael trudged back up the mountain as the darkness deepened around him. When he finally reached the corpse, he was relieved to see that it had not moved, and he picked up the middle piece and returned to the lodge house. The woman was delighted when he came back, and she snatched the snake's midriff right from him, She then insisted on boiling it in a cauldron on the fire, for it would be a shame to waste such good meat, and she let none of the young men touch the pot or help at all. Eventually, it was time for bed, but the meat was not finished boiling. Michael wanted to sleep by the fire as he was still cold from his midnight excursion, and the woman ummed and awed, but in the end she allowed it, although she instructed him to wake her when the meat was done and not to touch it in case he spoiled it. A few hours later, Michael awoke to the smell of cooked meat and went to check on the cauldron. He lifted the lid and oh, it smelled delicious. And so, with a shrug, he dipped his fingers into the broth to taste it. But the broth was boiling hot and it scalded his fingers and he yelled out in pain as the cauldron lid dropped to the stone floor with an almighty clatter. The wee old woman came rushing out and saw Michael sucking on his burnt fingers. You didn't try the broth, did you? She asked breathlessly. Well, I slayed the beast and I brought it here, so I thought I had the right to. And now that I have tasted it, I see why you have been so excited and protective over it. For now, I have the wisdom of the past, the present and the future, and more power to boot. I have stopped the ache in my fingers simply by thinking about it. And this was true. Michael's mind had suddenly been enriched with power and knowledge that it had not previously possessed. 
He knew the language of the birds and the beasts, and he found he even had command over the devil himself. Ah, well, yes, you're right. I, I did want that power and wisdom for myself by taking the first taste from the pot. But uh, you're right, you did deserve it, and to be honest, I'm not too angry about it. But promise you will use this power carefully, and that you'll think kindly of me when you do. Michael promised just this, and so the pair went back to sleep. The next day, the three young men set off on their journey once more. But Michael's friends were complaining that their legs were sore and how they were dreading the many miles ahead. And while Michael could now will his pain away, his friends could not. And so he took his staff, straddled it, and instructed the other two to hop on. And off they flew into the hills, and no more walking was needed that day. Hang on a wee minute, you sneaky little turnip. (laughs) How on earth is this origin story with the snake of wisdom and flying off on a broomstick more believable than the half-mermaid version. I don't make the unbelievability scale, Annie. That's the snake of wisdom's job, and I just have to follow it. Else I'd be eaten whole. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so what's the most believable, unbelievable story then, Jenny? Okay, well, we do know for a fact that Michael Scott was a very well-travelled man. And it's said that somewhere on his travels he met none other than the devil himself. And, like many before him and after, he ended up selling his soul to the devil in exchange for extraordinary knowledge and supernatural powers. Okay, yes, this is a classic wizard origin story. We've seen it with the Wizard of Gordonston and Donald Mackay, both famous wizards from the Highlands. And we also see this folklore used to persecute people who were accused of witchcraft in the trials that took place in Scotland in the 16th and 17th centuries. Yes, and this is definitely the prevailing theory when it comes to how Michael Scott acquired his powers. But it seems that Scott was a great haggler too, and also managed to get three familiars from the devil as part of the deal. Familiars? I'm not sure if we've spoken about these before. They are the supernatural guardians of warlocks, witches and wizards. They can either be wee magician assistants, helping with potions, spells and doing their basic admin work. Or they can be conduits of magic, so they can lend their power to the person casting the spells to make them stronger, to make them more magical. Now, we see a lot of superstitious beliefs about familiars come up in the witch trials also. They're usually spirits who can sometimes shapeshift or they choose an animal form or the shape of a supernatural being. The most common animals that they appear as are cats, hares, crows, dogs and goats. But almost any suspicious looking creature can be accused of being a familiar You know, people tell me I look suspicious quite a lot, so maybe I'm just a familiar. (laughs) You are what gives me power, Jenny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Michael Scott's familiars didn't take animal form. Rather, they were imps named Prig, Prim and Pricker. And when he first got them, he gave them a few tasks to complete that had been on his to-do list for ages. 
and he was amazed when they came back in no time at all and they'd completed these tasks with such ease and speed that he was like, nice, I got some good familiars on my side. And so he decided to set them a few harder, more complicated tasks. And to his surprise, they came back in no time at all and the tasks were all completed to perfection. This sounds like ye olde ChatGPT. Ah, but as with our worries with ChatGPT, Annie, it's when it becomes too powerful (laughs) and we lose control. (laughs) And for Michael Scott, as time progressed, he found that it was nigh on impossible for the imps to be occupied all the time. And this was not good at all. For let us not forget that these are creatures of the devil. And if they were not kept busy 24-7, then they would wreak all sorts of havoc out of boredom. And much like toddlers, if these wee imp familiars had any spare time at all, they used it to torment poor Michael by teasing him and annoying him and all round distracting him, which is not great when he has so much wizardly work to be doing. Everyone has that one colleague who simply doesn't have enough to do, so spends their day distracting everyone else. And I love that this follows through for the workplace culture of wizards. (laughs) You just can't get the staff in the 12th century, Annie. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the ways that Michael found to keep these familiars busy was that he would send them to the kitchens of the royal courts all over Europe, to France, to Spain, and even further afield. And he'd have them bring back the finest foods from these kitchens so that his friends could feast like kings and queens. It's just sending your colleague to the furthest away restaurant to get lunch for everyone (laughs) so that you can have that hour to concentrate on your work. And while this was a nice perk, the wizard was having to think up bigger and bigger tasks to keep these irritating imps out of his hair. For example, he instructed them to build a causeway over the Solway Firth. But while one of the imps was carrying a creel of rocks from Cumberland to Scotland, the string of the creel broke and the huge heap of rocks that fell created a mountain that is still to this day called Criffle, which is thought to have come from Creelfall. But because of this accident, the Solway Causeway project was called off and Michael had to think up yet another mammoth task that would take normal people a lifetime to complete just to keep the imps in check. He's essentially making them write blog posts, isn't he? (laughs) (laughs) It's far more epic than that. (laughs) One day, the imps were being particularly petty, and so Michael set them some gigantic jobs to complete. First, he commanded them to split the summit of Eildon Hill into three in only one night. Eildon is an impressive hill in the Scottish borders, just south of Melrose, And before Michael Scott and his demonic imps came along, it was a perfect cone-shaped hill. The type of hill that could be up against Shehalion in the Cone of the Year category in the Scottish Hill Awards and win. Huge claims. Alas, Annie, it will never be nominated. For that fateful night, after the command, the three imps gleefully raced to the hill and delighted in harnessing their powers to cleave great cracks into the perfect cone. They then gouged out huge chunks of the weakened rock until the cone was gone, and in its place were three peaks. 
Michael was amazed and appalled at the imp's impressive work. For now, he had to think up yet another task. And so he ordered that the River Tweed should be dammed. And thus, off the imps rushed out to build a huge wall across the river. Again, Michael was both awestruck and annoyed and had to think up yet another task. But this time, he was more cunning and devised one that would not just be huge, but also impossible. Well, Jenny, these imps seem to be putting the imp into impossible. Let's see what they can do next. (laughs) (laughs) Michael ordered them to weave ropes of wet sand that reached to the moon on the shores near Ringdu Point. But no matter how fast or hard the imps worked, or how high their ropes stretched, the incoming tide would inevitably wash the work away. Yet on they must build, working against the relentless tides, heeding their master's wishes, and condemned to their fruitless labour for eternity. And it's said that still to this day, fragments of these imp-spun ropes are still exposed from time to time by the low tide at Ringdu Point. Okay, so Michael Scott made a deal with the devil for supernatural power. But in doing so, he got saddled with some grind culture imps and now has to outsmart them to be rid of them for the rest of his life. However, to be honest, this seems it's more about Michael outsourcing his magical activity rather than doing it himself. So why else did people believe that he was a wizard? Oh man, Annie, there are so many stories. But for now, I think what we'll do is we should do a Patreon segment with some of the other ones because they're all great. But right now, I'm going to pick my favourite. That's a great idea, Jenny. Okay, so in between his many travels abroad, it is thought that Michael Scott lived in Balweary Castle in Fife. However, the Scott family also has strong border connections and it's believed that he also lived in Akewood Tower in Selkirkshire. And one time, upon his return from a particularly long trip abroad, he returned home to Akewood. His servants caught him up on all the local gossip he'd missed while away, and one of them told him of a woman who was gaining quite the reputation for being a witch. She lived near Falsehope, and this wasn't very far away at all. So intrigued, Michael decided to take his greyhounds on a walk and pay her a visit. But... When he knocked upon her door and was invited into her house, the woman denied being a witch or having any supernatural powers at all. Michael was disappointed to hear this. Honestly, he was keen to make some friends that had the same interests as him. But he drank his tea politely nonetheless. However, to drink his tea meant that he must put his wand on the table for a time. And as he did this, to his dismay, the woman snatched the wand and smacked him on the head with it. (laughs) (laughs) Rookie error. (laughs) Classic witch move. (laughs) She totally played him. (laughs) I'm not a witch. (laughs) (laughs) Michael stood and ran for the door, but by the time he was over the threshold, he had shrunk down into a hair. Now, this was bad enough, but to make it worse... His loyal greyhounds took one look at him and boom, the chase was on. 
The dogs raced after the frantic wizard hare as it tore back towards Aikwood Tower. But hares can't open doors, nor can they even knock upon them. Their paws are far too soft and fluffy. And so the only place Hare Michael could gain entry into his own tower before being torn to bits by his dogs was the sewer pipe. It's like Shawshank Redemption, but in reverse. (laughs) And so Michael wriggled up this horrible pipe and once inside, he was able to transform himself back into normal wizard form. He was fuming, but he ran himself a nice hot bubble bath, plonked himself in it, and cooked up a plan. The next day, Michael told his servant to knock on the witch's door and request some bread, and he watched all this happen from a nearby hill. As Michael had predicted, the woman denied his servants any sustenance and slammed the door in his face. But then, his servant nailed a piece of parchment above her door with an old spell and an ancient tongue on it, and then underneath the words, Maester Michael Scott's man sought bread and got none. Immediately, the woman began dancing around the fire inside her house and found herself unable to stop. At the time, she had been preparing food for her husband's workers and she would usually bring this to them in the fields, but as she could not stop her wild jig, she was unable to bring them food. The workers inevitably grew hungry and came in search of their lunch but as soon as they entered the wee house and crossed the threshold, they too were forced into relentless dancing around the fire against their will, and they were all chanting the rhyme over and over again. The woman's husband wondered what was taking his men so long, and so he too headed home. But on his way, he spotted a man on a nearby hill giggling suspiciously, And when he peered through his window to see where his wife and workers were, he put two and two together. Instead of entering his house, he made his way up the hill to grovel to the mighty wizard Michael Scott and beg his pardon. Michael had had his fun and accepted the apology, and he told the man to enter his house backwards and take the spell from above the door off with his left hand. This he did, and his wife and workers were released from the spell. The wife immediately returned the wand, and never claimed to be a witch again. Well, that's a very fun story indeed, Jenny. I do feel like doing a little dance now. (laughs) However, instead I'm going to jig all over your facts. (laughs) I'm going to have to highlight the Ickwood Tower, also known as Oakwood Tower, whilst built by the Scott family was not erected until around 1600, so it's rather unlikely that Michael Scott climbed up the sewer of this specific tower when he was alive in the 12th century. Oh, you just can't wait to get a debunking, can you, Annie? I can see it in your eyes. You're like a hare having to climb up a sewer pipe before getting a good bath. But just quickly then, let me let me sprinkle in a few other fun wizardly acts attributed to Mr. Scott before you can go wild. <laughs> One of these is that he is said to have turned a whole coven of witches to stone in Cumbria, and the petrified woman became the stone circle of Long Meg and her daughters. He also supposedly locked the plague in a secret vault of Glenluce Castle, 
which I looked up and it's now a self-catering holiday accommodation place. So let us hope that a snooping tourist doesn't unleash the plague on us all. Oh no, because that would definitely cause a plague of bad reviews. (laughs) Perhaps one of the most well-known tales is that one year Michael wished to know how to calculate the date of Shrovetide before it was announced by the Pope. So Shrovetide is the three days before Ash Wednesday, which marks the start of the Christian Lent. So Shrovetide is that preparation for Lent. Nowadays, the most famous day of Shrovetide is probably Pancake Day, where even secular communities eat pancakes. But because Easter Day changes every year, so too does Shrovetide. And Michael, like many others, wanted to learn how these dates were calculated by the Pope. This was actually a way more complex question than you can imagine, because Europe at that point in time was still on the Julian calendar, which had been brought in by the Romans. Now, the fault in this calendar meant that it gained one whole day every 129 years. This means by the medieval period, people are realising that the calendar doesn't quite make sense. It means that Easter can no longer line up with the equinoxes. So in this time period, the knowledge of Shrovetide is the kind of thing that you can only get from a Pope. Yep, and the Pope told Michael that he would tell him the secret if he reached the Vatican in half a day. Now, this would be impossible for a normal man. But, as we've learnt, Michael Scott was no normal man. He harnessed his powers of the black art and summoned three devilish horses. One that was as fast as the wind, one that was faster than the wind, and one that was as fast as the black blast of March. But he decided that none of these were fast enough. And so he summoned the devil himself in the form of a black horse that was as swift as the thought of a maiden between her two lovers. And that was fast enough. (laughs) (laughs) That's a direct quote, I believe, there, Jenny. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I haven't made that one up. (laughs) On this devilish steed, he raced towards Rome. But despite their speed, he was too late. And the Pope refused to give him the answer. But... Michael had arrived just in time to see a maiden slip from the Pope's chambers before he entered, and so he utilised this evidence of illicit activity to bribe the date from the shamed Pope. Okay, so with the help of the devil, Michael Scott has fooled the Pope, God's mouthpiece on earth, and come away with the knowledge of calculating the day of Shrovetide. What a wizardy thing to do. Right? (laughs) Now, now our calendar was eventually fixed a few hundred years later by Pope Gregory VIII in the 16th century. And now all the equinoxes line up perfectly so that all of us can calculate Easter. That's still fun. (laughs) However, Michael Scott retrieving this knowledge in the 13th century does sound suspiciously sorcery to me. And I'll give it to you. He does sound like an incredibly powerful wizard, if all of this is true. However, the- Oh, wait, 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 wait. Let's take a quick ad break and let the folk marinate in the folklore before you douse them in the debunking. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, Jenny, there sure is a lot of folklore explaining all the wonderful wizarding deeds of Michael Scott. However, there is just one problem. He wasn't a triumphant wizard after all. Ah, oh, come on, hang on a minute. You aren't denying that he was a wizard altogether. Clearly this man had something a little supernatural going on. Oh, it's complicated because he does end up <laughs> trying out some wizardy things. Though... Not enough wizardy things to make Gandalf blush. It takes a lot to make Gandalf blush, and we both know that. (laughs) (laughs) However, before we get into Michael Scott's blushing of Gandalf, let's rewind to the beginning. He was indeed born somewhere in the Scottish lowlands in the late 12th century, and most likely into a wealthy family. When he was young, he was a scholar and a man of God, studying at the Cathedral School of Durham, then Oxford, and then onto the continent in Paris. He became an ordained priest, and his interests included philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, and astrology, which were very interlinked subjects for 12th century Europeans. Oh, okay, he's into both astronomy and astrology. I like it, a man with an open mind. Because astronomy is the study of space, and astrology is interpreting the meaning of the skies for divination, or understanding the present, or even telling the future. Which sounds pretty wizardy to me, Annie. Michael Scott's real road to success was via languages. At this time, despite Latin not being a spoken language, Western Europeans used it to write books and to transmit knowledge. This is also before they had the printing press, so all books were laboriously copied by hand and were generally only available to very high-status members of society, that is, the church and the ruling class. Being in this elite group as a learned man, Michael was fluent in Latin, but he also learnt Arabic, and this is where he makes a big splash because he took works from Muslim scholars, translated them, and then blended them with his Latin readings. Now, the Islamic community had done a much better job of preserving ancient Greek knowledge and then building on it, and so they were much further ahead of Europe in these fields. For example, subjects like algebra were revolutionised by Islamic scholars in this time period, 
and these studies were slowly but surely being sucked into the Latin realm. Fun fact, the word algebra comes from Arabic, meaning the reunion of broken parts or bone setting, which I love to think of equations as being broken bones that need mended. I find that intriguing. Well, I find maths painful, so it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But good job on making algebra sound like wizarding. Nice. (laughs) Thanks. However... By translating Islamic works of astronomy and mathematics into Latin, Michael was introducing ideas to Europe that were far ahead of their contemporary concepts. You might think that all advancements in knowledge are good news. They should be celebrated. However, these new ideas could only be understood by a select few, a very small portion of society those fortunate enough to be the most well-educated. So to many folk in medieval Europe, the knowledge that came from a culturally and religiously different land had an air of mysticism to it. To add to this, when Michael's making these translations, it's also during the time of the Crusades, which were the religious wars initiated by the Christian Latin Church And these have fostered a fear of Islamic nations. But it's not just that he's translating and transmitting this knowledge, right? Because he is also interested in the most wizardly-ish of subjects as well. He is dabbling in the realms of alchemy and astronomy and these strange, not fully understood, somewhat mystical realms of knowledge. Yes, you're right, Jenny. So Michael Scott did have a great scholarly interest in divination. That is, the potential coded messages that nature could hide in the stars or the skies to tell us about great human affairs. Oh, well, Annie, I can sense the disbelief in your tone. (laughs) However, from all accounts, Michael Scott was said to be quite accurate at foreseeing the future. You see, as he travelled, he not only learned of the world, but the world learned of him. And this is how our Michael became an advisor and astrologer to Frederick II, who was one of the most powerful men in the world at the time. At the height of his influence, he was the king of Sicily, Italy, the Germanic regions, and he was the Holy Roman Emperor. Over his life, Michael made many prophecies, and a lot of them were recorded by several different medieval chroniclers. For an example of one of his predictions, let us quote Michael Scott from the archives. From the knowledge in the stars, I foresee the death of the great Emperor Frederick II. He will die at the Iron Gates when he should arrive at a place with its name born in flowers. And so, whenever Frederick II went to Tuscany, he avoided Florence, the city of flowers, like the plague. He would never step foot inside that city again, and thus be able to avoid his death. This is all that every emperor wants for Christmas, is the chance (laughs) to try and trick death. It's a classic power play. It is, Annie, and if the annals have taught us anything, it's that it never works. (laughs) (laughs) Tell that to the biotech pros who think they can reverse aging with their new AI snake oil. (laughs) (laughs) 
one day the emperor fell sick with an attack of dysentery whilst travelling. And so his loyal servants took him to the castle of Fiorentino. And would you believe it, Annie? He's suddenly in a big old castle named for blooming flowers. In his half delirium, the emperor looked around his room and saw that his chamber just so happened to have the town's gate built within it. The iron posts of the gates were actually inlaid in the wall as some sort of quirky interior design. (laughs) And so, as he lay in his bed looking up at the gates, the emperor announced, This is the place of my exit as predicted to me. God's will be done. Here I shall die. (laughs) And so, (laughs) Frederick II and his awful accent met death peacefully draped in the habit of a monk at the Iron Gates in a place with its name born in flowers, just as Michael Scott had predicted. See, I watched Final Destination as a teenager and I thought that it was quite an original film at the time, but they just stole the whole plot from the Middle Ages, didn't they? You can't cheat death, Annie, but you can cheat Hollywood quite easily. (laughs) I'm just going to highlight that Michael Scott was a man of God, and he didn't think of his interest in divination as something magic, but rather just good maths. He believed, like many well-educated people of his time, that stars told signs of the future in the same way that seeing a hoofprint indented in a road would mean that a horse is likely walking ahead of you. I mean... Sure, but at the same time, that's some pretty specific star reading that he's doing there, and I think he's just being modest. That's like he actually predicted a very <laughs> obscure random death. <laughs> I'm going to highlight that the chroniclers who were writing of his predictions were writing them after he was dead. <laughs> so... Well, they've got very good memories, so I trust them fully. <laughs> <laughs> But, okay, to be fair, I will say that many of the things folklore has attributed to Michael Scott and his imps, specifically, are really just ways of explaining weird geological anomalies in the landscape. An example of this is that it's said that he was keeping his imps busy with work by building a bridge across the River Covington in Lanarkshire when news came that he had died, joyous at finally being free. The imps threw down the huge boulders they were hauling and left for their hellish home. But today, we understand that these huge, seemingly out-of-place boulders were actually carried there in a sheet of ice, and when the ice melted, they were deposited on the ground below, and we call them glacial erratics. And similar to this, the three peaks of the Eildon Hills were carved by ice during the Ice Age, and Criffle was shaped by ice sheets too, The rope fragments visible at low tide are actually evidence of millennial-long coastal erosion, and the dam over the River Tweed is a volcanic dike which crosses the bed of the stream. And so, all of these seemingly inexplicable things are in fact very explainable with modern knowledge and understanding of geological processes. So, I think maybe we could rename the three imps Glacier, Volcano and Wave Power, and it would be a bit more accurate. And whilst we're at it, we can rename Michael Scott from wizard to mortal. And like all of us mortals, 
as you've just mentioned, Michael Scott must eventually die. So tell me, how does he shuffle off this mortal coil? Michael Scott died around the year 1230, and in typical Michael Scott fashion, no one is quite sure where. Possibly Walsty Castle in Cumberland, possibly Glenluce Abbey in Dumfries and Galloway, and possibly Melrose Abbey in the Borders. Although, if we're really honest about it, we don't even know if he died in Scotland or on the continent. However, since he was born in the 12th century, we can definitely confirm that he is dead. And just with his life, there are also many stories about his death. Yes, there's one tale of his death that is truly mysterious. So it's said that he either had a wife or a concubine who had grown exceptionally tired of him. And one night, he confided in her that while his powers were so great that they could ward off almost any danger and protect him from anything, there was one thing that made him very weak indeed. His Achilles heel, his one tender spot, was the poisonous quality of the flesh of a female pig who was feeling desire for a date with a male pig. We're not quite sure why getting in the way of piggy romance causes the pork to be poisonous, but that's a lesson we can all apply to our everyday lives. Is it? (laughs) A few days later, his scheming wife took her chance and prepared him a meal from the flesh of a pig in season, and then she fed it to him. When he realised what was happening and none of his powers could fight against the evil that was now rapidly spreading through his body, he scrambled desperately for the only cure. The cure would be some of the broth that this pig flesh had been boiled in, so that he could drink a little bit of it and it would neutralise the effects of the poisonous pork. However, his wife had foreseen this and she'd thrown the broth onto the dirt outside and it had seeped into the ground. Now, in some versions of the story, this is the point where Michael dies in absolute agony. But in others, he has a tiny spark of luck, for whilst writhing on the ground in pain, he finds a tiny little drop of broth in the impression of a cow's foot, a little hollow in the ground, and he drinks this, just managing to survive. Michael Scott then punished his wife in a truly brutal medieval fashion by placing a roasting egg under each of her arms. These two roasting eggs burnt straight through to her heart and they killed her. Now I'm not certain how hot a roasted egg may need to be to burn through to your heart, but I can guarantee you it no longer has a runny yolk, Jenny. Yikes, that is grim all round. But perhaps this is what makes Michael really take care of his mortality. Because there's a legend that was popular in the 13th century that said he predicted a small stone would strike him in the head and kill him. And so after this, he constantly wore an iron skullcap to avoid his own death. But the only place that a holy man cannot wear his favourite iron skullcap is in a consecrated building. And so, one day when Michael was in church, he removed his cap, only for a small piece of masonry to loosen from high above and fall at great speeds, striking him in the head and killing him. 
perhaps that's some sort of moral tale that with all the divination powers granted to him by the devil, God still reigns powerful. I think a lot of the stories I saw ended with the devil's powers trick you and that little stone is always going to kill you. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree with this. And it's interesting because in another legend, which is probably the most popular one about his death, is that Michael made it to a ripe old age, but does eventually fall ill and die. But whilst on his deathbed, despite people asking him where he got his powers from, how he became such a mighty wizard, he never revealed the source of his powers. But he did say, Cut my heart from my body and put it on a pole outside. If a raven comes down and carries it away, you will know that I am bound for hell. But if a dove comes down and takes it away, then you will know I am bound for heaven. (coughs) That was him dying, by the way. Uh, That broke my heart, Jenny. (laughs) That broke my heart. (laughs) After his death, the people did as he asked and cut out his heart, put it on a pole, and then they all stood and watched it in tense silence. Suddenly, the crowds yelled and shouted, as a black dot on the horizon grew until it was clear that a raven was racing towards them. And in no time at all, it came swooping down to take the heart, but was in such a hurry that it missed it. No sooner after the crowd's gasps had died down, a dove appeared seemingly from nowhere, plucked the heart from the pole and flew into the distance. And so, the devil who had long been preparing for Michael to join his ranks down below, was eternally disappointed. Well, Jenny, even after the inevitable death of Michael Scott, his spirit endured in spooking people out. One of my favourite accounts of this is the stories of his many books, which were stored in a great haunted library, deep in the vaults of the old Abbey of Glenluce. I was delighted to discover that a Victorian writer had made some well-educated guesses on the books in this collection, including such titles as Old Witch Songs, Every Coven's Favourite Campfire Sing-Along, featuring tunes such as We'll Be Divvying Up the Mountain With Our Imps, and The Back of the Broom They Canny Sing, Canny Sing, Canny <laughs> Sing. <laughs> Black Arts and Necromancy. How to Arrange a Rave from the Grave. The Soothsayer's Creed. The first rule of Soothsayer's Club is you do not make predictions about Soothsayer's Club. (laughs) Philosophy of the Devil. Where Deep Thoughts includes a pit of fire. (laughs) Satan's Almanac. Because you need a timetable even when you're in hell. Keeps us to schedule, Jenny. (laughs) And even when Michael Scott's body was long buried... This library was never quite normal. Jenny, can you be a concerned citizen? Always. None but priests above the age of 48 may enter this sacred archive. And if they take a book off the shelf and set it down in the wrong place, they will find it vanishes and returns to its original order. Moreover, if they attempt to take a book home, it will disappear as though an invisible librarian is keeping the books in check and allowing none of them to be read in private. 
It's said that a priest once attempted to copy the contents of a book on the dark mystics of masonry. He spent a whole day making notes, but alas, when he opened his notebook, he saw the paper was white and fresh, as though his ink had never written down the secrets of Michael Scott's library on the page. What a cursed place, with books that could do no good at all. I'm not going to lie. I would love a library where the books all reshelved to themselves. That's my dream. That's literally a nightmare library, Annie. (laughs) But it's in perfect order, unlike Michael Scott's skeleton. Tradition holds that deeper in the vaults, beyond the magician's library, Michael was buried. Now a curious local man wished to see if Michael Scott had been buried with any powerful magical artefacts. Perhaps gold from his alchemy, gemstones from his travels around the globe, or perhaps even the Holy Grail itself. So this curious man broke into the abbey and disinterred Michael's skeleton, but as he moved the stone from atop the tomb, he found the skeleton was sitting upright as though it expected a visit from him. As if hundreds of years before, the stars had told Michael to expect a guest in his tomb. The local man was driven to madness by this sight, and he never fully recovered. Walter Scott also wrote of Michael's burial place, though he said it was Melrose Abbey, also describing the grave being disturbed centuries later to the site of... Before their eyes the wizard lay as if he had not been dead a day. So even after his death, Michael Scott was haunting the imagination, with Walter imagining that his corpse had not changed over the centuries from his burial. In the many centuries that have followed, the life and lore of Michael Scott has inspired a great deal of writers and cemented his infamy as a magician. A wonderful example of this is that he's the only Scot to appear in Dante's Divine Comedy. In this poem, Dante gives a very detailed description of how he imagines hell as nine concentric circles within the earth. Essentially, hell categorises bad people into their worst sins, so they can be in a circle of hell most suited to them. It's really, it's quite an efficient system the devil has because he's using the almanac. <laughs> The first circle is limbo, and then the second is lust, and as we move down, we go through gluttony, to greed, to anger, heresy, violence, fraud, and the final circle is treachery. Dante encounters Michael Scott way down in the eighth circle of hell, where all the fraudsters are. Which, to be fair, is a pretty exciting circle to be in because it's also subdivided into ten evil ditches that funnel down like an amphitheatre. Dante places Michael Scott in the fourth ditch for all sorcerers, fortune tellers and astrologers. Intriguingly, the descriptions and illustrations show these sinners to have a pretty grotesque punishment in hell. Since they were always trying to see into the future, when they find themselves in the inferno, Their heads are twisted backwards, like the way an owl can look behind itself, only their heads are fixed looking over their own backs, and their bodies are horribly distorted, 
apparently revealing the twisted nature of magic. And so the fate of those who practice magic to see the future is that they may never look forwards again, only behind. It's kind of dark and really pious and, of course, very poetic. Ah, it all fits together because a lot of Michael Scott's work was actually on the nature of the world and the heavens and hell. And Dante actually agrees with Michael Scott in some ways because Michael wrote about hell as being deep within the bowels of the earth with no hope of escape. Michael also went through a volcano phase where he almost suggested that volcanoes could be the entryway into hell. But he didn't explicitly say it that way, he almost does. Well, you can still see Dante reading Michael Scott's thoughts on volcanoes and being like, nah, this is too much. And just giving them the heave-ho into hell. To the eighth circle (laughs) with you. (laughs) Well, researching this episode, I got really taken in by the 12th, 13th century way of viewing the world. And the patterns that they recognised. For example, Michael Scott got very interested in the number seven and how it dictates so much of nature. He believed that there were seven major celestial bodies, that is, the sun, the moon, and the five planets that are visible by the human eye. Seven metals, seven arts, seven colours, seven odours, seven tones in music. It might feel like a narrow view of the world, because the scholars were trying to categorise everything, sometimes into boxes that didn't quite fit. Yet, by doing this, even when they were wrong, and sometimes because they were wrong, it enabled human knowledge to make little steps forward. My enduring question, Annie, is which circle of hell is set aside for podcasters? Limbo, probably. Oh, nice, sweet. I'm good at limbo. I'm surprisingly flexible. Like a wizard bent in hell. (laughs) But anyway, I wonder how Michael Scott would have perceived himself and his modern reputation. He would have considered himself as a man of God, a man of humanities and science. His conviction in astrology and divination, like many medieval people, was founded in a belief that looking at the patterns of the stars were the closest connection that people could have to a message from the heavens. Just as they believed that hell was in the centre of the earth, they believed that heaven was in the sky. And so his divination, I think, for him was a way to bring him closer to God, even though the folklore tells us that that's what took him away from his God. It definitely does, because Michael Scott is considered one of the most famous and dreaded warlocks of all history. Yet in his lifetime, his most notable acts were to bridge different cultures through translation and to allow knowledge transmission between different nations and religions. The power of translation and sharing knowledge is almost infinite. It enables steps forwards in unravelling the mystery that is our world. However, in the 13th century, there was no democracy of this information. It was only available to those who had the highest status in society. And ultimately, Michael Scott's work had very little impact on the everyday person just trying to cultivate their fields of wheat. So it's not altogether surprising that folk were easy to believe the folklore about him 
but filled in the gaps of his studies, which they weren't equipped with the tools to understand. Plus, and this is the take-home message here, he did do some pretty darn wizardly stuff. Enough to make Merlin marry a manatee. Mermaids, imps, roasting eggs, hell. There's only so much you can get away with before people start to see you as the wizard you truly are. (laughs) Or aren't. Or are. And with that... (laughs) He was a wizard! Or aren't. (laughs) And with that, we thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. We are an independent podcast proudly brought to you through the generous support of listeners who give via Patreon. If you would like to join them for some brilliant bonus content and to ensure that we can keep making this magical little show, then please do follow the link in the episode description. A massive thanks to all of our patrons and a big welcome to the wonderful Kimberly and Tim who have recently joined us. We'd also like to give a special shout out to Andrew and his wife Hannah and wish you all the best from the Scottish Highlands. Thank you all so much. We really value and appreciate your support. You could also help us by following us on all the social medias, especially Instagram, which um, I have been slowly but surely clawing my way towards 5,000 followers and we're almost there. So If you have Instagram and you don't follow us and you'd like to see lots of pictures of wonderful Scotland, then please go and follow us. It's also one of the few places where you can see Jenny's face. Yeah, it's great because most of the time I just wear balaclava. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, Slangeva. Slangeva. How does he shuffle off this mortal coil? Michael Scott died somewhere around 1230 and no AD, (laughs) PM. (laughs) Well, (laughs) sorry. I don't know why that's so funny, but that's funny. Right. Just died at 1230 in the afternoon. It's like lunchtime for the imps. They've just come back with a salad. (laughs) He was a wizard! Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.